Everybody. Hey, we're about to start a brand new series. This could be six weeks long, entitled Ancient Ink. And what I want to talk about is the Bible. And normally when I say that, you think, yeah, well, that's kind of what we talk about every week. Uh, but I don't mean like another book of the Bible or another series about some teachings in the Bible. I mean like the actual Bible in itself. And I do plan to have a lot of uh, teaching in the, the rest of the year in regards to the books of the Bible. In fact, uh, we're going to talk this year, by the end of 2017, Genesis chapter 1 to 11. We're going to study the Gospel of Mark. We're going to study the book of Daniel. We're also going to study Paul's letter to the Romans. So there's going to be a lot of expository preaching is what it's called, which is my favorite kind of preaching between now and the end of the year. But for the next six weeks, what I actually want to talk about is what is actually in or, or the Bible itself. And in it, what we say in regards to God has given us a book. And if that's true, what does that mean? And what this will feel like is largely a teaching time. So I want to say that out loud uh, as we kind of get started. There's lots of different genres of preaching. Sometimes, you know, we can go all Pentecostal, but at the moment, we're going to go uh, just kind of, this will be more of a teaching time. And in it, I would encourage you, if you haven't downloaded the Living Stones Church app, to go ahead and do so. And in that app, you can get the notes to the message. But if that's hard for you, like you can't type on your little phone fast enough, uh, get the paper and pen. I would encourage it in regards to some of the things that are going to happen in terms of these next six weeks, because my intent is to challenge some of your most foundational thoughts about the Bible, or at the very least, to make you uh, think through questions that perhaps you've never thought about in regards to the Bible itself. And anytime we do this, and I know this is true for my own life, anytime somebody kind of raises issues or questions or foundational thoughts or gets us to kind of think in a different way, I know that can feel very destabilizing at times. It can be kind of a disorienting experience. Now, I don't apologize for that. I think that's healthy for us to think well and deeply and theological about so many different things, especially about the Bible itself, because what we believe about the Bible matters and it affects so many other things. And I will also say up front, like you might not in the end agree with some of the things that I say. Trust me, you will not be the first and you will not be the last in regards to some disagreement, but I would like to at least uh, get us to ask some questions. And also, because I already did this once this morning, um, I recognize I wrote a whole long sermon and we're going to run out of time and I'm just going to end it. And so it's going to feel in the end like Sam just raised a bunch of questions and issues and then it just stopped like a a movie that you go see, but there's going to be a sequel and you're like, you walk out going, really, that's how it ends? Like, so I get that, but there's kids in the back, and there'll be mutiny on staff if I don't end this at the right time. So, uh, yeah, but you can follow along in the notes uh, on the app, or if you've got a paper and pen, you can do that. Now, in this series, um, what we're about to talk about, I think, will be the foundation and basis in terms of principles for a lot of things that we'll talk about when we do get to Genesis 1-11, to and when we do get to the Gospel of Mark. But here's what I find often is whenever in the church you have a disagreement about some issue or some matter of doctrine... What happens is when you watch that conversation, if you're an outsider, what you can see oftentimes is they're just talking past one another or they're speaking in ways that nobody's, like, it's just missing them. You ever had those conversations where it's like, we just talked for 30 minutes and I'm not sure that we communicated at all. And the reason why is because oftentimes the issue is not that particular issue. The issue is the foundational assumptions that we hold that are different from one another and we're not talking about that. And if you were to talk about that, all of a sudden it would make, oh, that's why we're not seeing eye to eye on that issue or on that particular doctrine. So what I would like to is not about like the issues or doctrine. I like to go back to the fundamental assumptions we have about the Bible and have that kind of conversation. And so 
the purpose then is to have those questions raised. And I've just discovered even in my own life that sometimes, you know, we could just accept the Bible without ever asking, well, where did this come from? And how do we get it? And, and why these particular books that are in it and even some of the things that are inside it, what do we do with those sorts of things? So this morning will be largely introductory and, and it'll be foundational, though, for the weeks ahead. So let me just start by giving you an illustration so you can understand why this matters. Why should we talk about the Bible itself? I want you to imagine that your Muslim neighbor after living next to you for quite some time, comes to your house one day, and he wants to talk to you about your eternal salvation. Puzzled and just a little bit nervous, you begin the conversation, and he informs you that he thinks that you are sinning against Allah because he's noticed that you do not observe the salat, or the five prayers a day faced towards Mecca. Well, you begin to protest that you don't think that you're required to observe these prayers. And then he pulls out his Quran and he turns to Surah 30, Arum Ayah 17 to 18, where it says, So glorify Allah in the evening and the morning. His is all praise in the heavens and in the earth. And glory Him in the afternoon and when the sun begins to decline. Well, being that you're not a Muslim, your first response would most likely be to reject the Quran as an authoritative source for your life, and for your beliefs, and for your conduct. With all due respect to your neighbor, you don't really care what it says in Surah 30, Arum, Ayah 17 to 18, because the Quran is not for you, sacred, sacred scriptures. Does that make sense? Or your neighbor might protest, but the Quran is the Word of God. Like, these aren't like just the words of Muhammad. He was just the messenger. This is the literal and dictated words of God. My guess is that most of you in the room would not go, oh, the literal and dictated words of God, I guess I should start praying towards Mecca five times a day. Or, for example, is that bells going off? Susie Williams, is that you? <laughs> Teresa... I'm waiting. Take your time. That's right. Unless it's God texting you, let me know. That's what I'm waiting for. Let's just say one July afternoon, you're out grilling some delicious cheeseburgers. And I mean, and I mean the kind that you have carefully placed several slices of cheese on top with a buttered and toasted bun on the grill, slathered in barbecue sauce and mayonnaise and sautéed onions. And I'm sorry I got carried away just a moment here. Let me go back to the Bible. And your Hindu neighbor, because we all have Hindu neighbors, right, comes over and he's clearly offended and upset. He fears that the cheeseburger that you're about to digest could be one of his relatives who have died and may have come back as that cow. And of course, this is just silly to you. I mean, you don't mean to offend him, but you are not going to deny yourself this succulent and juicy cheeseburger because he thinks that cow might really be great Uncle Rashid. But then he pulls out his pocket Bhagavad Gita, and he turns to chapter 2 and verse 22 and reads, Just as a man discards worn-out clothes and puts on new clothes, the soul discards worn-out bodies and wears new ones. But being the fact that you're not Hindu your first response most likely would be to reject the Bhagavad Gita as an authoritative source for your life, your beliefs, and your conduct. 
No offense to your neighbor, but you're not really interested in what the Gita says in chapter 2, verse 22, because you don't consider it to be, for you, sacred scripture. And your neighbor might even protest. But this is the message that was given by Krishna when he proclaimed he was an avatar or bhavagat and took on the appearance of the all-embracing God. In fact, these words are older and more ancient than anything in your Bible. It's the very communication of God's truth. It is divine. My guess is most of you in the room would not go, oh, the divine word of God, the divine truth. I guess I should put this cheeseburger down. No, my guess is you would consider having a second. <laughs> or finally, one other illustration, and it's a trickier problem. Let's say it's a Saturday morning, it's the month of May, and your Orthodox Jewish neighbor comes over to your house with a rock in his hand. And he comments that you and your family seem like nice people, but you've been mowing the grass and doing yard work all morning, thus breaking the Sabbath, and now he has to stone you to death. <laughs> now, of course, you're slightly alarmed by this development, and you push back that he's just being ridiculous to think that you can't mow the yard on a Saturday morning, to which I would say, unless it is before 9 a.m., and then you should be stoned to death because you're waking up all your neighbors, and it's just not, it's not right. Well, you begin to protest that you should not be executed for such. But he says back to you, it's in the Torah, God's Word. And he even opens it up and he points out Exodus 31, verse 14, that says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you, and anyone who desecrates it is to be what? Put to death. Put to death. Which is why he's there with a stone in his hand. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. Now, this is a little bit more problematic to you because this is actually in your Bible. It isn't like the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, but you know this doesn't seem right and you don't think you have to follow this part of the Bible and you aren't really sure why, but you think it has something to do with Jesus. Praise Jesus. So being that you aren't an Orthodox Jew, you aren't likely to be persuaded by his argument that you should be executed. In fact, you're trying to figure out how can you get to your gutters and clean those once you're done with your yard. And the question becomes, why? It's because you've made some assumptions about the authority and normative teachings of the Torah and how they don't apply to you, to which at the end of the conversation, your neighbor simply says, hey, and that shirt that you're wearing right now, is that two different blends? Is that a cotton polyester blend? And things pick up again in terms of nervousness. And here's just what I want you to see in these illustrations. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of sacred scriptures that we could use that have been believed by some group, some ethnic tribe, some nation, some religion that would have absolutely no weight with us because we do not fundamentally accept as an assumption that it is sacred scripture, that it's God's word, that it is authoritative and normative, meaning, no, it applies to us here and now and today. So we don't, with all due respect, care what the Quran says, we don't care what the Bhagavad Gita says, and we don't care what is in Leviticus, even though we aren't really sure why, unless it happens to be about gay people, then that sure applies, because we are living in a day and age where those around us, and this, this is why this matters, we're living in a day and age where those around us no longer accept just as the final say in authority, the Bible says so. You might, as a Christian, be appealing to the Bible, and you think about the Bible just like they do, or just like we do the Koran, 
and the Gitas. And so you keep saying the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. And what you might hear back is that's just a circular argument. So the assumptions and questions for us to answer is why have we chosen to accept these 66 books that are in this one book? As, see, I pulled out the King James Version, leather bound. Isn't that nice? It's been a long time. Yeah. Why do we accept this as sacred scripture, the Word of God? as true and divine revelation, and not those others. In other words, why do we believe this ancient text should have authority and relevance in our lives today? And this is a legitimate question. Especially in our day and age, it is worthy of our consideration and examination, study, and answers. And let me tell you why else I think this matters. It matters because our assumptions about the Bible oftentimes are producing very simplistic and trite answers to very complex questions that your kids have and that the world around us has. Not only to those who don't believe in God, but answers that I'm telling you your own children are more and more finding unconvincing. And it isn't because there isn't an answer, but because the one you are offering is probably based on an assumption of the Bible that I would like to suggest might not be tenable or even necessary. And if you come at it with a, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, which you hear that often, what I'd say is there's a good chance your kids might go, well, that's not enough for me. Or if you respond, well, it means what it says and says what it means, they might respond, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. And if you were to say, if the Bible says there was a talking snake, then doggone it, there was a talking snake. What I would suggest is sometimes our simplistic answers, we fail to appreciate the distance that we live in comparison to the days of the Bible. And, and sometimes we have a tendency to think, no, I mean, I mean, I know things are a little bit different, but 2017 isn't really all that different than it was back in the days of the Bible. And I say, oh, yes, it is. Like, it is significantly different. Like, we, we, tend to, we tend to minimize it as, you know, nowadays we just have a few more technological gadgets and, at our fingertips and running water and electricity. But the truth is we live our lives with totally different assumptions about reality, a totally different worldview, and even a totally different filter for morality. How we view diseases is completely different. Or time, or cosmology, like how the whole universe exists or even violence and justice and economics and government are still completely different in 2017 than it was 2,000 years ago when the Bible was written. They lived in a completely foreign culture with a different language, different customs, assumptions, worldview, and ways of comprehending and understanding truth, and that matters to us today as we try to navigate the Bible in our life here and now. Let me just give you one illustration that you can appreciate like in the days of the Bible, how people thought, which is different than how we think in 2017, or at least I would suggest ought to be different than how we think in 2017. Let's just talk about women for a moment, right? Because I'm an expert. <laughs> just, <laughs> that was just a joke. <laughs> just kidding. Let's talk about a, a view of women compared to the days of the Bible versus 2017. Because it's radically different. In the days of the Bible, the social norm and context in which the Bible was written was called patriarchy. Have you ever heard that word patriarchy? That means that men do and should rule everything. Don't, men, don't give me an amen because that will go bad for you the rest of the day. Just this patriarchy is what it's called. 
And in it, what you recognize as you're reading through the Bible, it reflects that day and age. It reflects that view of women. And if you're reading it in 2017, you have to ask yourself, does God intend for us to think like this? Like normatively for all times and all places? Or is that just how they thought back then, but we're free to think differently now? Let me just give you a few illustrations that should disturb you. One is in Genesis 19. You heard the story of Abraham and Lot. Remember that story, Abraham? He's got a nephew named Lot. And in Genesis 19, Lot takes into his house some strangers, a couple of men who are complete strangers, and he's going to give them a place to stay for the night. Well, when some of the people of the town hear that strange men have come to Lot's house, they go to his house and demand his strangers be brought out to them so they can gang rape them. Like, that's what they want to do. And Lot decides to protect his guests. He offers to the crowd his two virgin daughters instead. Do you hear that? Does that bother anyone else? Because I'm not sure to what extent I would go to protect the guests of my house from being gang raped, but I promise you I will not be offering my daughter in exchange. And you catch a glimpse of how they viewed women. And it gets worse. There's another story in Judges uh, 19. It's almost kind of the, a parallel story where an Israelite, a man and his concubine, is on a journey, and, and the journey has to stop at a place called Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin. And there he finds an old man who's willing to give him a place to stay for the night to keep him safe. And while he's there, some wicked men in the town find out that he's there, and they go and want the same thing. We want to sleep with your guests. And by that, they mean by force. And so you know what they do instead? They offer the crowd the man's concubine. And the crowd rapes his concubine so violently that she dies. And when he wakes up the next morning, she's laying at the threshold of the house, and he says to her, get up, let's go, which is real compassionate, right? And that's when he discovers that she's dead, and they killed her. And then what happens next is she, he cuts up her body in 12 different parts and sends it to all of Israel, which those will not be in the children's Bible books that you read at night to your kids. The story is absent, and, and, and for good reason. But the question for us is, what in the world? And it reflects a particular view of women in the Bible. Let me give you another one. Or let's imagine, because this can happen in the Bible, that you marry a woman and after the honeymoon, you suspect that she really wasn't a virgin when you got married. So what you're allowed to do by way of the law is to go back to her family and demand evidence of her virginity, to which that has a whole other set of questions to it. And if they can't produce it, do you know what they get to do to the woman? They get all the neighbors, and they stone her there on the front porch of her parents' house. Does that disturb anybody else? Yeah, it does. Or another story in the Old Testament. Let's say there's a husband who's just kind of prone to jealousy. He's kind of a little bit, can't even prove it. Doesn't have any evidence, but he's just kind of got that deep-down gut feeling that his wife has been cheating on him. Do you know what he gets to do? He gets to take his wife to the priest, and the priest will take the holy water and mix in it some dust from the floor of the tabernacle, and he will pronounce a curse upon her that says, if you have been unfaithful, if you've been faithful to your husband, may no harm come to you. But if you have been unfaithful, may this water curse you by making your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And she's supposed to respond, amen, so be it, and then drink the potion. <laughs> to which we should ask these questions. How about that old-time religion? <laughs> but that's in your Bible. And it's fair for us in 2017 to ask, so what do you do with that? And I could go on for quite some time with stories and illustrations that should disturb you, and it should force you to go back and ask questions about the Bible. And you might say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament, but praise Jesus, that's all been nailed on the cross. So let me give you another example from the New Testament. This comes from the Apostle Paul, where he writes and tells 
the Christians in church, that their wives are to submit to their husbands. In fact, it's in several passages that gives instructions in regards to how households should operate. In fact, in the, early, in the first century, they called it household codes, is what it's called, and Paul will offer his. Husbands should act like this, wives should act like this, children like this, slaves like this, masters like this. Have you seen these passages in the Bible? Let me read one for you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Amen. No, I'm just kidding. Wait. Now, you can find this also in Colossians 3, 18, 25, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 3, verse 7. And we read this and we can conclude, oh, the Word of God. And just think, I just imagine how many times this passage has been used by men throughout history for untold abuses, thank you, toward their wives. And not once did we ask, well, what are the assumptions behind this passage? And he find out that the assumptions in working context is patriarchy. The question for us in 2017 is, what do you do with that? And do we have to accept that anymore? When we live in a day, in 2016, you could be a woman and run for president. Probably won't win, but you could still run. Come on, it's over. I'm just like, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't say which side I'm on. I'm just telling you, it's just over. Man, hostile crowd already. Woo. And see, then what happens is, you could read other Roman historians and philosophers, and you recognize they also have their household codes. And when you read it, it's almost identical to the ones that Paul gives in regards to how things are supposed to work and how things are supposed to operate. The question is for us, what do you do in 2017 when we view women like differently? In fact, we think to think like that would even be immoral. And these are not inappropriate questions for us to ask of the Bible. And in fact, our children are, and they will ask. And if our only answer is, well, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, your kid might say, then I'm out. Or when our kids get older and might be introduced to scientific evidences of the origins of the universe, which will happen, they're going to have a crisis of faith that gives them only two options. I either have to believe that creation happened 6,000 years ago in a six 24-hour literal day, or I'm going to have to believe the overwhelming scientific evidence that it did not happen that way at all. And if you only give them those two options, it is quite possible that they will leave their faith and walk away from the church, not because they don't want to love Jesus, but because it simply cannot hold up to the overwhelming amount of scientific evidence against that. And what I would suggest is the reason why is because not what the Bible itself teaches, but an underlying assumption we have about the Bible. To assume that the Bible is even trying to offer us like a science textbook or a historical account or a scientific explanation of the origin of the universe. What I'm simply trying to say is these are not your only options. They are assumptions about the Bible that have tremendous implications, and we must go back and ask deeper and better questions about what the Bible actually is, and even more importantly, what the Bible is doing. How does it function? Because what we believe about our sacred texts and sacred scriptures and holy books matters. It always matters. 
On 2001, September 11th, 19 men hijacked planes and attacked America. The World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and just shy of 3,000 people died. And as Americans, in response, we tend to think, oh, they were just cowards and they were ignorant individuals. And the truth is, they weren't ignorant at all. Eight of them were engineers. Almost all of them had advanced degrees, and they weren't cowards. They were courageously living out their understanding, interpretation, and assumptions of their sacred scripture. They had assumptions about the Koran that determined their interpretations of that book that led them to the application and deadly consequence of September 11th. That's why assumptions we make about our holy books matter. And we are not exempt. Your assumptions about our holy book, the Bible, will lead you to particular ways of thinking and values and behavior. It will be your assumptions about the Bible that will determine how you will respond when or if your child ever comes to you and says, I think I'm gay. Or what you will do or not do about refugees. Or how you will treat your enemies. This matters. And it would be one thing if we could just think about the Bible as just a great classical piece of literature. In that case, we'd all just huddle up around a living room and just talk about the narrative twists and turns of plot and the authorial intent and the impact of the audience and deeper existential meaning of certain passages. But that's not what we're saying about this. What we're saying is this came from God. This is God's Word. It reveals to us truth. This is not like Homer's Iliad or Shakespeare's Macbeth. It has divine authority and weight. And because of that, this matters. And I do think the church historic has always recognized the importance and implications of the assumptions that we hold. In fact, if I were just to ask you uh, your thoughts about the Bible, where did it come from? My guess is, for most of us, we wouldn't be able to clearly tell you. Like, most of us did not sit down and go, you know what, I'm just going to have a study on the Bible itself. Most of the things that we believe and have even brought into this room about the Bible are thoughts that you picked up from your parents, or maybe some pastor told you what to think, which I'm trying to do now. I mean, and so, right? Just certain things that we assumed about the Bible because of different words or phrases we kept hearing over and over again, which I'll share a couple with you in just a moment. But so, so if you grew up a Catholic, what you bring into the room because of your Catholic background are certain thoughts about the Bible. And without diminishing the reality that there's diversity in the Catholic Church, and, and I'm admitting I'm stereotyping most of the people I know who grew up Catholic, which is like 50% of the room, half of you come, so you're like, I'm a Catholic. You're not alone. Like half the room is from a Catholic background. You don't really remember ever hearing much about the Bible. You don't feel like you ever had a rigorous study of the Bible, per se. You heard it read in the lectionary during Mass. Maybe some, some verses were quoted at your catechism. And you understood that it was the Catholic Church with all of its councils and encyclicals that gave you the Bible. But that's about it. Now, for the other half of the room, or those of you who grew up in an evangelical tradition, you probably have completely different thoughts as you walked into the room. You grew up in a tradition that probably has as its motto, sola scriptura, meaning scriptures alone. It's a high view of the Bible and its authority, the only reliable source of truth and revelation. And because of that, it must be protected and guarded against attacks on all sides. And so evangelicals produce a lot of commentaries that try to harmonize every apparent discrepancy that there might be in the Bible. And they try to smooth over any perceived contradiction in the biblical account, even down to the slightest issue in a genealogy or chronology. Well, why? 
because of certain assumptions that we have about the Bible. And what you get embroiled in is this battle for the Bible, which actually does have a historical setting and a time when this really gets heated up. Has anyone ever heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial? You ever heard that in American history? Some of you have heard about that? It's a famous uh, trial that took place in 1925 with a substitute high school teacher, John Scopes was his name, who was accused of violating Tennessee's Butler Act. What you're thinking, well, what was that? The act said that it was unlawful to teach human evolution in any state-funded school. So you see the turn we made, right? You cannot teach evolution. Now, Scopes was unsure whether he actually did teach evolution, but he purposely incriminated himself so that the case could actually have a defendant. And Scopes was found guilty and was fined at the time $100, which is about $1,300 today. And the verdict was ultimately overturned on a technicality. But the trial served its purpose of drawing intense national publicity as national reporters flocked to Dayton to cover the big-name lawyers who had agreed to represent each side. So you had William James Jennings Bryant, who was a three-time presidential candidate arguing for the prosecution, while Clarence Darrow, Darrow, the famed defense attorney, spoke for Scopes. But in this trial, all of a sudden, you began to see at work this battle for the Bible for fundamentalists versus those who were more modernists. Those were considered conservative versus those who were considered liberal. And what happens is you, just, you have a pitting together of two different sides in this battle for the Bible. And it's led to all sorts of thoughts and doctrines and teachings. And so what happens is doctrines get placed on top of the Bible that the Bible itself might not talk about. Now, I'm, I'm going to wrap up with this. But have you ever heard the word inerrancy? You ever heard that word inerrancy? You might have heard people say the Bible is inerrant. Well, inerrancy is a particular way of thinking about the Bible, and it has its own assumptions behind it, and it kind of manifested and came to a head in this battle for the Bible. Now, the problem is everyone defines inerrancy completely different. And in the definition, almost always go back to what we call the original autographs, meaning the original letters of Paul. Do you know how many of those have survived? Do you know how many original letters we have? None. So because one of the most irrelevant doctrines, but... but if your kids go to Elkhart Christian Academy, you will need a letter from me as your pastor saying that we believe in inerrancy of Scripture, to which my answer will always be, well, I have my definition. You have your, what do we mean by, because everyone thinks differently. But let me give you one that is one definition. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms. Now, I don't know if you can already see the assumptions that, right? You already kind of feel some of those assumptions. But that means if we can't figure it out now, it just means all the facts are not in yet. And if even the facts are in and you're still seeing that the Bible doesn't seem to get it right, then you're probably interpreting it wrong. And in the end, the Bible will be vindicated on every score and every account. Whether that relates to doctrines or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences. But the implications of this, de- of this definition require a certain view of the Bible and therefore origins of the earth, place of science and faith, and the nature of Scripture. Or how many of you heard the word infallible? Anyone heard the word infallible? Another word. In fact, I like infallible better than I do inerrant. But in it, there's lots of different definitions. Let me give you one. Infallible is usually used to mean reliable and trustworthy. Infallible means that it cannot fail to communicate the truth we need about God in order to be saved and transformed. Those who trust His infallible teachings will never be led astray. And I'm for attempting to define what these words and these doctrines mean, but what I would want to remind everyone is that this battle for the Bible, this brouhaha that's broken out, especially in evangelical Christianity, includes a lot of arguments the Bible itself 
doesn't make. And so think of like a, a couple who's divorced, two parents are divorced, and the child's stuck in the middle, and the both of them are trying to use the kid against the other. That's what the Bible feels like to me oftentimes, like a poor kid is getting used by both sides. And in it, it should drive us to ask the questions, yeah, but what does the Bible itself actually say? Now, here's where I'm going to stop, and I have a whole lot more to get through. So if you're on the app and you see the notes, you're going to see scripture. Like I, my intent was to get to all these scriptures. So here's where I'm going to go next week. I'm going to stop here so you get your kids, and I don't have a mutiny on hand. Uh, but next week, we're going to pick up with asking this question. What does the Bible say about itself? Like, we can use the words inerrancy, and we can use the words infallibility, and we can do whatever we want to put on the Bible, but we need to stop and ask the question, yeah, but what does the Bible say it, about itself? And so that's where we're going to start next week and continue with this conversation. What does it mean then when 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired? So that's where we're going to pick it up. But I know right now, like, I'm just kind of like, hey, you, thanks for all these questions and confusion and, and all that. I, I get that. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this next week. So let's just pray, and we'll wrap up today. God, we give you thanks for your word. And I ask, Lord, just as we move forward from here, that you give us your spirit to rightfully think through this book that you have given to us through human authors and what it means to us today and how it is that we use it and apply it and interpret it in 2017 because we recognize it matters and it has implications, big ones. And so, Lord, just would you bless us with wisdom and rightful understanding, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.